1: Is the legislature moving to make abortion virtually illegal in Georgia? Will lawmakers vote for a state takeover of Hartsfield-Jackson Airport? And are lawmakers ready to give Georgia voters the decision about legalizing gambling? Political Rewind starts now. I'm Bill Nygut, we're glad to have you here for this edition of Political Rewind. Let me introduce the panel right away because we have a lot to talk about. The AJC's lead political writer, Jim Galloway, is with us because if it's Friday or Monday, Jim Galloway is with us. Um, The uh, AJC's political uh, reporter, I call him the lead political reporter, I'm not sure the paper would like that designation, but you are that. Uh, Greg Bluestein with us today as well. Galloway's column, We read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And both of you are participating in posting stories on the Political Insider blog at uh, myajc.com, or I guess ajc.com now, uh, all day and into the evening. So thank you both for uh, being here. Georgia State University political science professor Amy Steigerwald is uh, with us. I should point out that you reminded me uh, before the show went on of some another little responsibility you have. You oversee the interns program down at the legislature. Is that right?
0: I do. I do. There are 60 of them this year. They come from all over the state. You need to be a junior or senior and then they help. And we've I watched actually one of the interns the other day helping out in the higher education committee hearing and all other ones. It's been really exciting.
1: Well, uh you know it'll be fun to get a chance to talk to some of your interns about what that experience is Definitely. like. Definitely. Um, we're also joined today by State Representative Brenda Lopez from Gwinnett County. It's especially great to have you on this show because Gwinnett County has just been ground zero for significant political activity uh, all of a sudden. Welcome, Brenda. Well,
2: thank you so much. And absolutely, Gwinnett is going to lead the way for the state.
1: Okay. Uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Galloway, I thought I, the um, headline is, In the jolt and I'm I'm not being I'm not saying it exactly, but essentially what the jolt said this morning was the Super Bowl is over. The culture wars at the Capitol are underway. And the first item in terms of that is we've now got Governor Kemp uh, saying that he wants to pass a bill that would be a trigger. Should the Supreme Court rule Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional. It would virtually automatically make abortion illegal in Georgia.
3: Yeah, this is this is in and, and IT'S, this this is you're right. Uh d- before the Super Bowl everybody was trying to do a hands-off thing, just kind of make it make the state look good. Now th- now they've we've got this crush of of social conservative legislation that's that that all that has to be funneled through one chamber or the other by by Thursday, by crossover day. Mm-hmm. So and and this is this is probably Kemp's big one here. Uh it would uh it, it's it's uh, uh, it would, yeah, it would. It would be dependent on what the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court does. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Greg might be able to fill me in here. Uh, the Supreme Court doesn't always say this switch is off. That switch mm-hmm. is on. Mm-hmm. It could say what happens if you know. I, I don't know what would happen if Roe v. Wade was just simply adjusted a little bit.
4: Yeah, it says if the if the Hallmark part of of Roe v. Wade which which allowed the legalization of abortion in the states is either partially or, or completely overturned, it would trigger legislation in the state that would essentially ban most not all but most abortions in Georgia um except for four conditions: emergencies, medically futile, rape or incest, which is more conditions than other states. There's four other states that have the same similar laws, and it's more conditions than many of those states have. Um, but this would be a sort of a big precondition to doing that is is the possibility, and we don't know if it will happen, obviously, but the possibility that the U.S. Supreme Court takes on this case and overturns it.
1: So we know that Governor Kemp, as candidate Kemp, Brenda, throughout uh, his campaign, uh, said that one of his goals would be to pass the toughest rebor- abortion laws in the country. Uh, this seems to be a step seems to be a step toward making good on that promise. But it really doesn't do anything unless the US Supreme Court acts, right?
2: Well, that's right. I think we were mentioning this off air that um, it's a way to show that you kept your promises without doing anything. And on top of the fact that regardless of um, the Supreme Court leaning more towards the right in votes, quite frankly, I, um, I just don't think that we are going to be there as, as a country culturally, as was mentioned, um, to actually do some severe overturning of um, the right to privacy and the right to, choi- to, um, to choice. So I, I, I just again, I just see this as as um, the political stunt of saying that you did something when you didn't actually do anything.
1: So the cynic in me uh, says that, Amy, uh, that, that perhaps this is a way to try to make good on a promise to ap- appeal to the conservative base that certainly mm-hmm. uh, approves of Kemp doing as much as he can to outlaw abortion here, uh, that this is a way to kind of deal with that without doing much of anything. That's what the cynic in me says. On the other hand, This is now the second measure that we have at the legislature this session that uh, really, in both cases, virtually bans abortion. The other bill, which essentially says that once a fetal heartbeat is detected, abortion becomes illegal, and that's at six weeks, uh, typically, which means you're virtually outlawing abortion. So... What the governor is doing may not have a practical effect. There's no question that we're in a situation where conservatives are trying right now to do as much as they can to curtail abortion dramatically.
0: Most decidedly. I mean, so we see across the nation, really, that laws like this are being put into place. Now, with the Fetal Heartbeat Bill, what's important about that one is that we know it is constitutionally impermissible. Right. That would go against where the standards are, both set by Roe v. Wade, as well as KCV Planned Parenthood under undue It's been verdict.
1: adjudicated in courts in any number of instances. Exactly.
0: And it has been that laws like that have been struck down. There were, there were similar ones in Oklahoma and some other places that were similarly sort of already challenged and struck down. What they do, though, is they send a very clear sort of political message of where it is that lead politicians in the state are on this topic and also sort of signaling what might happen if the court was, in fact, to roll back those protections in Roe v. Wade.
1: All right, so, Greg, you're watching the legislature every day. Uh, Jim Galloway made an interesting point before he went on the air. He said that in an attempt to try uh, to uh, perhaps take attention away from a religious liberty bill a couple of sessions ago, speaker ralston introduced what he called the pastor protection Mm -hmm. act which uh went a little bit down the road toward protecting faith leaders without embracing religious liberty in its entirety and and i think jim's suggesting that it's possible the governor is in a similar place right now um perhaps hoping that the fetal heartbeat bill will be subsumed by his measure. Does that make any sense at all or no?
4: Maybe. I mean, in the legislature, you have to watch the names. And um, there's two different versions of the fetal heartbeat, one in the Senate, one in the House, both introduced by Republican lawmakers, um, but not with any any vocal camp support. I mean, he has not said anything on, the, on either of these bills. Um, anything seems like that he's getting behind it. But with the uh, trigger bill, obviously, with the trigger laws, his floor leaders have introduced that with his full backing. So this might be a way to sideline, you know, to focus on this legislation, the trigger legislation, rather than the fetal heartbeat, which is a, its own thorny problem um, for, for, for even some conservatives who want more restrictions on abortion but also don't want to see it struck down by, by the courts. You're,
3: you're, you're going to see some intensity here uh, on the part of social conservatives, I think, this session and next session. Uh, House Republicans have a 15-seat majority right now. Uh, Ms. Lopez and her friends on the Democratic side look, are looking to shrink that uh, in, 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 the, uh, in 2020, uh, and it's very, very clear that, that Republicans aren't doing well among women right now. So, if there's, a, there's you're trying to thread a really delicate needle here. On one hand, if your, your, base Republic, your base Republicans are desperately to get want to get this done before their time period ends, before their window ends. And yet you've got you've got to start thinking about uh, the uh, the Sharon Coopers uh, in, in the House who in Marietta, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, Senate uh, Jan Jones, the uh, Senate uh, the House House Speaker Pro Tem, who, who's up in up in uh, uh, Milton uh, in, in this northern arc. And they're all vulnerable. So I am going to be watching to see how those women react to this legislation. Brenda,
1: you're right. It, as I said a little while ago, it kind of a ground zero with a lot of politics right now. And and what Jim Galloway is talking about applies to Gwinnett County right now. Well,
2: absolutely. And that's what I was going to say about these bills, it, um, not just the, the abortion bills, but all the other conservative bills that we're seeing. It's sort of, uh, quite frankly, it's, you're, you're, you're adding to your demise. And I think that um, right now it's sort of clawing for the last bit of um, power that you do have. And I think that that's why we're all, we're. we're we're seeing this, um, the social conservatives really pushing, pushing these issues. But quite frankly, I think that that is to their detriment in 2020. And um, it's most definitely to their detriment by 22, where um, I really expect us to be able to um, win the House.
1: I, I was remembering that, uh, and, and again, I know I go back to a different era at the Georgia legislature, but I was remembering a time when as conservative as Tom Murphy was, as Speaker of the House, when abortion bills came before him. Uh, he was the first one to quiet them down. And I'm not so sure it was necessarily because he thought the politics weren't right. A lot of it had to do with his personal history. He had a daughter. His daughter was always whispering into his ear about the legislation that she liked and didn't like, and she apparently had a big influence on his, uh, what he thought about abortion. Uh, but partly during the Murphy era and then moving forward, we, we do have a 20 weeks bill that has passed, but this is the first time we've seen a really full-blown rich effort Uh, to go as far as they want to go now in a long time.
0: No, I think that's very true, though. I think also, as Greg and Jim keep pointing out, the trigger bill does not have any actual legal impact there's a multitude of things that have to happen, including first that the Supreme Court actually either severely curtails Roe v. Wade or strikes it down. Then there has to be a resolution that's passed later on by the, by the General Assembly, and then the whoever is governor at that point has to sign it. And I think the other part that's really intriguing about it is are the exceptions that they put in there, particularly the ones about medical futility and maternal health, right? Sort of acknowledging that these are things that kept in mind, and and that there really are sort of a vast variety of reasons why, in fact, right, abortions happen at all stages um, some that are medically necessary and dealing with medical futility.
1: The most conservative among us don't want those exceptions at all. Not at all. Not even for rape or incest. And so, in a way, uh, the governor's crafted a, a piece of legislation that allows people, uh, I want to be careful about my choice of words, certainly that allows those exceptions that other states don't have mm-hmm. who have passed exactly. similar legislation. Well, in
0: the medical futility one, so to get wonky for just a second, um, there are more people than, that, more women than a lot of people realize that have what are in fact medically abortions because they've had a miscarriage. And these, that are, the these, these
3: can often be late term. Yes,
0: yeah, sometimes that, they're late that's term, the, but I
3: was And that is what sparked you know, the, the debate in Virginia, right?
0: Exactly, but I was talking about even early term. Right? A lot of times it's called a missed miscarriage where a woman, the the body rejects the fetus, but for whatever reason, doesn't actually expel it out of the woman's body. And so she therefore has to have an, a, a procedure which is medically an abortion, right? It's a, it's a dilation and, and curlitage And so what I think is sort of interesting there is how that may also come out to play as people start to realize what those numbers are of how many women that that affects, especially as we see uh, the age of maternal, uh, a first year that women are, are having children really increasing.
1: All right, so we can talk about this from the perspective of uh, what would appeal to conservative voters in this state. But Brenda, there's there's a larger universe to think about here. Mm -hmm. There was a time immediately before, and certainly for years after Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, uh, that uh, abortion was looked upon uh, more favorably by a pretty good percentage of Americans. The data shows, I believe. Mm -hmm. Over the past, I don't know, decade-plus, Amy, you may have some information about that, the tide has turned a bit. I mean, there are still people who believe that women women have the right to choose. But abortion, th- there's more negativity around abortion today, I would suggest, in a, more, in a broad way, in a general way, than there has been in the past, while at the same time people say, yeah, you should have uh, the right to de- terminate a pregnancy if it's in your best interest, if you want to do it. But, gee, we think about the procedure, we think about uh, what it means, and and the, the, I think the polling now shows it's a lot more split than it was in the past.
2: Well, see, I always am cautious about polls, right, about who it is that you're, you're surveying. And so I don't think that that's the general consensus amongst the everyday person and everyday voter. Okay. Um, I, I, just, I just don't see that. Now, what we have seen, and that's why when you do these surveys, um, is that you, we have seen this bombardment over the last 10-15 years of constant negative, um, negative messaging about abortion and most definitely misinformation about who who, and why you need to have um, abortions. And so I think that it's more about where we've gotten in terms of the media and how it's discussed and, and that it's always an either-or, right? You're either for choice or, or you're for... Um, uh, PRO-LIFE, um, when, WHEN, IN FACT, THERE'S SO MUCH GRAY IN THE MIDDLE. AND ONE OF THE THINGS THAT I, um, that FOR ME was SHOWS THAT AND HIGHLIGHTS THAT WAS WHEN WE WERE HAVING THE, issue, um, the DISCUSSION ABOUT um, LATE-TERM ABORTIONS IS THAT THERE WERE SOME WOMEN, AND IT'S HARD BECAUSE IT'S A LOT OF SHAMING, RIGHT, SHAMING OF THE CHOICES THAT YOU MAKE DESPITE THE FACT THAT THEY MIGHT BE MEDICALLY NECESSARY, mm. BUT THERE WERE SOME WOMEN THAT CAME FORWARD AND SAID, YOU KNOW, I'VE HAD A LATE-TERM ABORTION. Um, and that was a huge and difficult situation in my life. And how, lit, how dare you belittle the experience that I had to go through um, by the way that you d- um, depict, what, you know, what this means. And so I think that that I, I think that if we see any any um, real severe detraction at the Supreme Court level, I think that you will see that um, that reemerge, um, that desire that you need to, I need my choices with my reproductive health or mine to make.
1: Okay, so, Greg, we've got a Senate and House bill that both deal with the issue fetal heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Once the heartbeat is detected, women cannot have an abortion. Now you've got the Kemp legislation, uh, the trigger law. Uh, what is your sense of... How these bills move forward? Are they all going to keep moving forward? How tough a vote will this be for a lot of members uh, on on either side of the aisle? What's your sense of all this?
4: Well, the the Kemp bill is is, has the full force of the administration behind it, so I think it's on the fast track, and I think that will be a party line or near party line vote. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll hear a lot of objections from Democrats, and you'll hear a lot of support from Republicans, but there'll also be blowback from conservatives that it doesn't go far enough. And we surveyed a range of conservative groups. After that measure came out yesterday and found that, yes, while some of them say it's a step in the right direction, they want the fetal heartbeat bill. They want something that goes much further. And if you're Brian Kemp and you ran and you won the Republican nomination on pledges to crack down on immigration, expand gun rights, pass a religious liberty bill, and, yes, in, in, increase restrictions on abortion, you feel like you have to do something at the end of the session that goes, does that. And we're not seeing much movement on these, those other fronts quite yet, either.
1: All right. Um, well, we're going to watch all of that and see if it moves forward. Uh, Greg Bluestein just said two magic words: uh, religious liberty. It's back, Jim Galloway, <laughs> in what is full this? force. This is the
3: sixth year, I think. The <laughs> sixth, like sixth that. year. Yeah. The sixth year. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is uh, we've. Uh, this has been introduced by Marty Harbin. Ben Harbin. Uh, no, Marty. Marty, no, Marty Harbin. Harbin. Mar- oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Marty Harbin I apologize. of Peachtree City, uh, whose district includes uh, Pinewood Studios. Uh uh so there's a little bit of a conflict there because your your movie industry is is dead set against this legislation uh it w- we will it it is it is supposedly patterned a, a mirror image of uh of of uh the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993,
1: on the federal side, that was a Clinton administration bill that they put their weight behind. A Democratic president. Yes. We should Pe- peyote out. was the issue there. Yeah.
3: Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, not, 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 uh, not, gay rights, which is is, is the right. case. Right. Is the case right now. Kemp has pro- promised during the the the, uh, uh, the campaign that he would sign a mirror image. This may have enough extra stuff that it could give him an out if he chose to choose that out.
2: Well, he said that if it was anything different, he would veto it, right? And when you have um, this piece of bill that actually gives um, uh, lawsuit rights, for, for private citizens to actually change what the government or agencies is doing in terms of um, law or regulations, then obviously it's not a mirror image.
1: Why don't we listen to uh, uh, what Brian Kemp was saying when he was out on the campaign trail about religious liberty? This is, I think, from last November on the campaign trail, early November.
3: Support uh, the exact language that's in the federal statute now, doing that at a state level. It protects religious freedom, which we absolutely should do. It does not. Discriminate, and I've been very clear on that. I'll veto anything less.
4: Where is this headed? Well, he's not commenting yet on this legislation. Right. Which is which is a signal in itself. Yeah. Um, but this is a even the mere introduction of this legislation is a big deal. I mean, remember not that long ago, Chris Riley, the governor, Governor Deal's top aide, warned as Georgia was trying to recruit Amazon and other big corporations that even if a bill that goes nowhere is introduced. It sends the wrong signal to business interests and could be a negative impact in the the future. So you can see the metro Atlanta chamber, the Georgia chamber, all sorts of um, LGBTQ groups and civil rights groups all rallying together yesterday and and, and earlier to try to oppose this bill. And a lot of, you know, but there's a lot of names on that Republican bill too in the Senate. Not only is Marty Harbin the sponsor, but seven Republican committee chairmen are on that list. So there is, there is support, not support from many of the top leaders in the Republican caucus. We're not sure where, where um, Jeff Duncan stands on it either, but support to, to make it seem very credible.
1: All right, but the Senate's always been, Amy, the place where religious liberty bills are able to advance. It's the House that has uh, pushed back on them, and we have a uh, House Speaker David Ralston, who has said for a couple of sessions now, "I don't want to see a religious liberty bill passed in Georgia." Um, I don't, and I think e- even before the session began, he was suggesting that he still he had not changed his mind on this. So, is he the uh, is he the one who's going to stop this dead in its tracks? Do we think?
0: Very possibly. I mean, this is a great way of sort of seeing sort of the power that leaders, especially of the chambers, have. If, let's say, the bill does pass through the Senate, right, so first that means that Lieutenant Governor Duncan has to allow it to come to a vote on the Senate floor, and that's still in question, but if it was to do that and to pass and then come to the House, Speaker Ralston has total control over that agenda, and my guess, based upon things that he's said for years now, is that he wouldn't allow it to come up for a vote, and there's an argument that there's going to be a lot of bills to get through in a very short period of time, so why bring something up for a vote which has sort of such pushback, especially from a lot of... very the large companies that they're trying to attract well, but two days
2: I would say two days ago we had Arthur blanks uh, that that was yes. his um, in, um, invited mm-hmm. person and so you know he's also come out uh, against EXACTLY. Um, I do want to um, highlight two things one of the things is that everyone talks about the mirror image um, for the federal one it was meant and why it was supported by Democrats um, it was meant to be a shield um, mm-hmm on the free exercise of religion, not on how you practice your own beliefs in terms of what legislation is passed. And unlike what we're seeing and what we're usually seeing at the state level, um, is that they're being used as swords um, to be able to one, fight against the government, but two, basically say that your individual beliefs somehow have to um, be safeguarded. Now, there's a difference between you having whatever beliefs you want and being able to exercise your religion and be free from government burden on that exercise. And so it's most definitely not the same when we talk about what the federal intention of RIFRA is and what the state's intention of That
1: RFRA. was the whole point you were making about what happened in the and back in 93. It was an issue about peyote being used by certain uh, Indian tribes. In religious areas? religious ceremony. Cer- ceremony and they right. needed to be protected in their ability to do that and that was one of the uh, that was the genesis initially of the RIFRA. right and and
3: and now what it is it is it's a it's a this is a this is a an attempt to uh, to alter our our interpretation of the public accommodation law Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what that's what the current religious liberty legislation is aimed at as to as to whether if I if I run a and b do I have to do I have to serve everybody or do, can I exclude uh, LGBT? Uh, uh, patriots, individuals. Yeah.
1: Individuals. Yeah. All right. So where do we think this is going, Greg Bluestein?
4: Well, it's late in the session. Yeah. The crossover day, as you mentioned earlier, is Thursday. Um, and we don't know how much juice this has behind it. I mean, there'll be a lot of pressure on Jeff Duncan from conservatives to move this through, to get it to a floor vote. And then we're in the situation we, we've been in in past years where the Senate passes a version of this bill, and it's up to the House. And, yes, we mentioned that David Ralston has been a critic of these bills over the years. But also, go back to 2016, and this is what critics are really worried about, is in 2016, he was somewhat critical of the bill, too. Passed, you know, it had And could not stop it. Could and stop then it. couldn't stop that. Train. Right.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, and it was, yeah. uh, that's right, it was Nathan Deal who had to stop it by exactly. uh, not signing uh, the bill? Of and the
4: big law. difference is Nathan Deal had never really staked any public yeah. stance on that.
1: Mm-hmm. He yeah. Has. Yeah. Um, OK, so, Amy, I, I want to look at an issue that comes up all the time, and Jim Galloway actually pointed it out when he talked about that Pinewood Studios are in Harbin's mm-hmm. district. We know the business community. We, uh, Brenda mentioned Arthur Blank has come out saying he's opposed to it. We've seen in other states uh, how businesses have reacted negatively to religious liberty uh, legislation, to laws. Um, but let's be realistic for a second, um, especially in terms of things like a Pinewood Studios. It is hard for me to imagine that the movie industry, which has now made enormous investments, economic investments in the state of Georgia, Mm -hmm. uh, and which is getting tremendous economic uh, incentives out of the state of Georgia, is going to suddenly turn around and pack up everything, knock down the studios, and go to another state. And I wonder sometimes if it isn't overstated how significant the impact of legislation like that is. You had Alyssa Milano, the liberal activist actor, uh, urging uh, Hollywood people to boycott the state of Georgia when Brian Kemp was elected governor. Mm -hmm. So so I'm not underestimating the business community's uh, negative response to this. But do we have to look realistically at how big an impact it could have?
0: Definitely. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to do, I mean, the best we can do is we can match it against what happened in North Carolina and in Indiana after they passed yeah. similar laws. And they had problems. And they did. Yeah. Uh, North Carolina lost a lot of revenue. Yeah. There were a uh, pulling of And North what you Carolina saw... North Carolina lost
3: the movie industry. Yeah. A right. Early. They lost true. the movie
0: industry. They also lost but, the NBA. <laughs> there were supposed to be games that were held there, and they rerouted them actually to Atlanta yeah. um, because they refused to hold them there. And so the repercussions could really be pretty large, and especially in a state that's growing in the sense that we are of what is coming here is that there's a lot of debate about whether or not places are going to come here and are they going to change that? Are they potentially going to limit the workforce that they do have, even if they're here? That means they don't have to keep hiring here. They could hire other places and expand.
2: The other thing that I'd add to that is also the ability uh, for the film industry generally to galvanize um, voters. Right. Yeah. You're right. You know, if, if you've actually built a, a brick and mortar structure where you have your brick and mortar structure, but, you know, labor's different and, and talent is different and production is different. But at the end of the day, even if that's not the case, they have television to galvanize folks to come out and vote and say, hey, this is this is what your state is doing. This doesn't work for us. OK,
4: I'd say money talks to. We've seen the movie industry pull up stakes in other states, yep. yeah. but not because necessarily because of the legislation they didn't like, but because the tax credits were eclipsed yeah. by places uh-huh. like Georgia.
1: All right, uh, we got to get to a break. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about in terms of what's happening downtown at the Capitol. We'll do that when we come back.
3: Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call eight seven seven GPB one car, or donate securely online at gpb.org/cars. And thanks. People whose names you see at the end of a movie or a TV show. I'm Kalina Bowler. I've worked for years behind the scenes in Georgia's booming film industry. In my GPB podcast, I meet the people who help bring art to life, from actors to stuntmen to camera operators. Join me for the credits. Subscribe at thecreditspodcast.com.
1: Uh. Jim Galloway, a few years ago, when uh, legislators, Earl Earhart, the Cobb County longtime uh, House member and leader from up there, started talking about a state takeover of Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, we all sort of looked at it and said, well, interesting, you're trying to punish the city in some way, but come on, it's not going to happen suddenly, this effort this year is gaining real momentum.
3: You've got a, a bill, Senate Bill 131 by Bird Jones uh, in the Senate uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Jackson, I believe, uh, passed out of committee five to four on Tuesday. It, uh, it was not on the, the uh, calendar on uh, Friday. It won't be on Monday's calendar coming up but it could make it uh, sometime before, it make a, f- a floor vote in the Senate before crossover day in, on Tuesday. If that happens, that would be historic. A, a takeover bill, it's, th- there, they, have been, they have been around for, for decades, yep. if not generations, generally used to, to, to give state lawmakers leverage over the city of Atlanta on other issues. This is the first time it has ever come to a floor vote. And uh, you've you've had uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms really raising the alarm on
1: this. You, you talked to Keisha Bottoms about this. And in a minute, we can uh, uh, turn the, the column that you uh, are just. Is it up online already? It's up. It's up online. Right. Have, a, have a read. We can talk a little bit about some of what she said to you. But she also talked to GPB radio, Stephen Fowler. And here's just a little bit of what she told Stephen.
2: This is a, a theft of the airport from the people of
0: Atlanta, and it doesn't serve Atlantans nor Georgia well for us to go down this path. Um, the state and the city of Atlanta have had a very good working and productive relationship over the past several years. And if this goes through, this unilaterally destroys the trust that um, so much time has been spent building between the two.
1: Um, you know, Greg, When I hear Keisha Bottoms, the mayor, the current mayor, talking about the relationship between the state and the city, it reminds us all, I think, that it was maybe in part Kasim Reed's uh, very positive and constructive relationship with Governor Deal that certainly would have stopped an effort like this in its tracks. They were too involved in working to help one another. That relationship... KESHA Bottoms may want to build it up, but it's not there right now.
4: I agree. We've had these efforts before that never made it this far, and one of the reasons, if not the main reason, was because Governor Neal didn't just oppose it, he forcefully opposed it. They would leak documents, publicly leaked documents, that showed bonding problems and financial risks and all these other issues that were aimed... SOLELY AT CONVINCING CONSERVATIVES IN THE REPUBLICAN PARTY NOT TO GO FORWARD WITH THIS. NOT ONLY WOULD IT TAKE ATLANTA'S CROWN JEWEL AWAY, BUT ALSO RISK THE STATE'S FINANCES. AND THAT SEEMED TO WORK. AND MAYBE THERE ARE SOME OTHER you know, BEHIND THE SCENES THREATS, TOO, ABOUT THIS GOING FORWARD. AND SO THAT WORKED. THIS YEAR, you don't, GOVERNOR KEMP HAS NOT SAID ANYTHING PUBLICLY ABOUT THIS OTHER THAN THAT HE'S IN ACTIVE TALKS WITH REPUBLICANS AND HE HAS HIS EAR TO THE GROUND ON IT.
1: SO, uh, JIM, YOU, you, you uh, STEPHEN GOT SOME GOOD QUOTES. But she, Keisha Bottoms, when I read your column, she's really ready to go to war over this. Oh yeah, yeah.
3: She, she said <laughs> absolutely. This this bill is a declaration of war. Yeah. Uh, and and it has tremendous economic implications for the city and
1: and and for the and for the state as a whole. So let me ask a naive question. And and I'm not an attorney. I don't think you're an attorney either, are you, Amy?
0: Uh, not technically. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I took a lot what, of law school classes.
1: Good. But. By what authority? can the state what is the legal groundwork and maybe somebody else knows this by which the state can just come in and say yeah we're taking over the airport
0: so legally they cannot okay the faa has control over this they've contracted right with the city and for this to move forward the city of atlanta would have to in fact AFFIRMATIVELY AGREE TO BE TAKEN OVER OR TO ENTER INTO THIS DIFFERENT THING BECAUSE THE FAA'S CONTRACT IS IN FACT WITH THE CITY OF ATLANTA AND THAT'S REALLY WITH THE PROCEDURALLY WITH THE BILL CURRENTLY, THAT'S THE MISSING PORTION OF IT IS WHAT ARE THEY GOING TO DO ABOUT THAT BECAUSE IT IS NOT VERY CLEAR THAT THE FAA IN FACT WOULD look on this favorably as it is. They've intimated in other ways that they they haven't, but also the city of Atlanta has made very clear that they're certainly not going to agree to this.
3: And the counter argument to that is that cities are the creatures of the state.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, Brenda, uh, what is What is really all of this about? I know that the sponsors of the legislation and supporters say it's about the fact that they've seen uh, federal investigation of Atlanta city government and they've found corruption left and right. Um, there has been corruption for decades around contracts let at uh, the airport. Uh, and, and they say they're simply trying to make sure the airport can be operated ethically, uh, above board, contract can be awarded on the basis of merit and all of that. Is that a reasonable argument or not?
2: Well, here's the reality. Uh, The author has stated just as much that that the FAA has to approve, right? And it's actually written that way. So it really boils all down to political posturing. Um, I think that that's all we're doing. Because at the end of the day, it's not that the state has not had its fair share of issues about um, conflicts of interest and and about corruption issues. So to say that an airport that actually has been managed well, despite what has happened or had happened in City Hall or the City Hall of Atlanta, um, the reality is that our, our airport is really a, a crown jewel not of our state but internationally
4: and let's be clear too this is also about power if this were to somehow go through the members of this board that would oversee the Atlanta airport would have tremendous power over contracts and, and oversight issues um, that would be that would that would rival other state agencies that that political donors and supporters could be appointed to so it would it would vastly expand the state's power
1: let me make sure I understand this. We're saying, uh, based on what you just said, Amy, in the long run, it's the FAA that awards the contract for the airport, as it does airports all over the country. If that's the case, how does the state and the sponsors of this bill intend to reconcile that with their legislation do we have any sense of that
3: well, well the, the 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 faa decision came out of a, a similar instance in which the north carolina state legislature tried to take over mm-hmm. the airport in charlotte yes yes and 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 that's a regulation that came out uh that's a that's a that was an obama era regulation uh,
1: regulations can be changed and brian kemp just happens to be one of the really uh, vociferous supporters of president. Trump. Right, so things th- things are in flux.
3: One thing, uh, again, we, we've mentioned that this has been used as leverage before. Uh, one thing that could happen is if this does uh, reach the Senate floor and if it does pass and and is sent to the House you could see this this bill become a a, a very interesting bargaining chip on issues like religious liberty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and, and 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 other very very issues where they need to neutralize
1: metro Atlanta support all right. as long as the ball's in your court uh, you pointed uh, uh all of us uh Robert Jimison Tom Faust and me to an exchange that took place in a committee hearing on this the other day, um, Representative who is in Steve that?
3: Gooch, Steve Gooch, a Republican from Dahlonega, uh, and it, 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 uh, he, he started asking uh, Bert Jones some questions about his bill, and uh, Jones is saying that 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 this uh, this airport authority would be structured like the authorities that govern the Georgia World Congress Center and the Port of Savannah, and Gooch came up and said, no, that's not good enough. Because his point is that under state law, right now, under state regulations, if you're a member of an authority and you want to do business with the the entity that you govern, all you have to do is declare it. That transparency is considered enough. And Gucci is saying no. Uh, it wasn't added to the bill, but he says uh, more more that the bill needs to be tightened so that if you're on the airport authority board, and uh, your your company does business with with, could do business with airport with the airport it's not going to
1: can't do it which is the a- answer to uh, the power question that we're talking about here there was part of that exchange was an interesting one when we uh, uh, took a look at it uh, that had to do with the notion that when that this isn't a negotiation it isn't if there's two sides working on this so let's just listen for uh, this for a minute to hear how Bert Jones deals with that
3: so unlike a typical real estate closing the seller doesn't have to be at the closing table under this transaction if this passes does that make it you know we've tried to get the seller to the closing table several times but uh even though they come to the table they they don't foresee any problems with what's going on so the the the, the intentions uh, i guess are are was was not to do this uh uh, in a uh, in a manner there we're in right now. Uh, I think uh, all of you know on this panel that I'm, I'm a pretty reasonable person and And I'm very easy to work with uh, and while I've had very nice conversations and, and cordial conversations with uh, Council members and the mayor's office and everything um, The attitude seems just to be that well, we're gonna fix it and and y'all just move on. There's nothing to see here kind of thing
1: Brenda, it's hard not to find that just a little bit amusing. Bert Jones seems to be a bit incredulous that the city of Atlanta hasn't come to the table and said, fine, let's work with you on how you can take away our most valuable economic engine.
2: That's right. That's right. Especially when you have uh, the Delta CEO coming also and saying, yeah. hey, don't mess with something that's not broken. Right. And that's something that we constantly talk about.
4: OK. But As we've seen, lawmakers are not afraid to tussle with Delta.
1: Well, yes, that's right. But, by the way, as long as you mention it, uh, we should say that after, really, a couple of sessions yeah. of fighting back and forth, the Delta fuel tax break is flying high. It's flying away.
4: You're right. You're right. They, they, <laughs> they went back to the drawing board and got it right. okay. um,
1: I'll tell you what. We're going to talk about casino gambling, and I want to get to early voting in Gwinnett. Um, we're still, want, we still got to get a break in, I think, don't we? Let's do that right now, and when we come back, we'll talk more about all the activity down at the uh, Georgia legislature.
3: Hi, I'm Ira Flato. This week on Science Friday, the 1986 explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. Was it an accident waiting to happen? There's a series of mistakes and faults each one of which, individually, is not fatal. What it took was for all of these things to line up in a
1: confluence, and then that results in a disaster.
0: It's
2: all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Join us for
0: Science Friday this afternoon at 3 on GPB. Allegations that Michael Jackson sexually abused young boys have been around for years. A new documentary dives into the stories of two accusers and their families.
2: They were dazzled. They were
0: starstruck. You know, they let their little boys sleep in Jackson's bed night after night and didn't think twice about that. We hear from the director of the new documentary this afternoon on All Things Considered. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 here on G...
1: So with Crossover Day approaching uh, on... on next Thursday. Everybody got the mm-hmm. date on that off the top of your head? Seven. I, March 7th. Okay, March 7th. Uh, and we all know, talk, crossover day, it's the last day, presumably, a bill can be approved in one body, go over and still have time to be considered in the other, although this is a group of people who know full it well is, it, there's it, no it, such thing as a dead bill. It, <laughs> a, a, bill, bill <laughs> only, a bill is only mostly dead. Mostly, yeah. mostly <laughs> dead. <laughs> no, there's
2: dead bills and undead bills.
1: <laughs> Zombie bills. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Greg, one of the bills that seems to be moving and now has been tacitly supported by both Governor Kemp and David Ralston, two conservative voices. And Lieutenant Governor Duncan. And Lieutenant Governor Duncan. uh, Three conservative voices under the Gold Dome saying, you know, maybe it's time to let Georgians vote on whether they want gambling in this state. That's a remarkable step. It
4: is. Uh, Each of them say they personally opposed (laughs) legalizing gambling and did so on the campaign trail, but they said it might be time now for for a constitutional amendment that lets Georgians decide on their own. And the the big contrast to this is that in years past, we've had glitzy efforts from casino companies that have come in promising billion-dollar-plus investments and campaign cash for politicians and making very public lobbying efforts, not just to lawmakers, but also to the general public. This With, has with been, a
3: complicated structure of, of how it would happen. With a complicated
4: structure. This time, it's been much more, much quieter approach with no sort of a complicated uh, uh, setting out the standards that, you know, there'll be this m- n- number of casinos with this much investment in these places. Instead, they're saying, let's just get a vote on whether or not to legalize gambling, that would funnel profits into education, and then in 2021, come back out with the enabling
1: details. legislation. You got it, Brenda. What do your constituents say when they t- you talk to them about casino gambling? Do they uh, do they approve it? They like the idea?
2: I actually, in, in in my part of the world, um, I would say yes. There, there's not a general issue or moral issue against um, casinos and gambling. I think the question um, definitely of how is this a value to, to my constituents and to our constituents of Georgia? And where is that education funding going to go to? And one of the things that we, when we did have those long um, discussions, and I think that was, I would say, pretty close to um, a Democratic caucus consensus, is that we need um, need-based scholarships if we're going to have casinos in. And so I think that that's still a conversation that's going to have to be pushed, although it hasn't been highlighted as we did in the past sessions.
1: We should point out that this is essentially, as I recall, how Zell Miller was able to pass a lot the lottery in Georgia, the first measure was should there be a lottery, Mm -hmm. uh, which voters it it got to vote on. And then when they said yes, by a very narrow margin, they came back the next session with the enabling legislation to actually put it all in place.
0: Yeah, so it's following a very similar process to that. And I think what's also sort of interesting here is that they've sort of backed away, as Greg was saying, from sort of the glitzy version of it, talking, right, going in, sort of suggesting almost sort of the for-profit nature, and instead really tying it much more to the lottery and the hope grant and the idea that this is going to be helping with education. It's not about who's going to be making money it's not going to be about who's going to be getting lobbied on these things instead it's about how we can increase because I think the other side there that uh, we'll, we'll start to see come up is that the hope grant of course has changed over time right it used to be that anyone who met the uh, GPA requirement would receive uh, the money and now it has become more means tested it's also that the GPA levels have increased and the amounts have decreased and this is one way to potentially uh, address those concerns but but I think the the quieter approach is probably one of the reasons why it's working better.
3: We should also note that because this is a proposed constitutional amendment, it requires a two-thirds vote mm. in each chamber, which means that Democrats get to play big time on mm. this question.
1: Uh, it also means the governor doesn't have to sign it. Yeah. There exactly. you go. It goes right to the voters. Mm-hmm. It does not need this the uh, signature of the governor. And you got to say, Brenda, if you're a pro gambling advocate. Uh, you're delighted that Governor Kemp, who has made it clear that he personally doesn't approve of gambling, doesn't have to be a part of that final step in this process.
2: Well, absolutely. Well, I don't know that I say I'm pro gambling. Well, I, I, <laughs> but, did, I meant that but, hypothetically. Right, but um, but but absolutely right. The, the issue here is like we need to know um, what voters think, and and we're a very different Georgia than when Hope Scholarship came up with with. Um, the lottery system. Then, so I think that if we were barely able to narrow um, a yes vote on that, I think that we might have a greater margin on that this time around.
3: You know, one one thing, I, one question I've got, and I can't answer it, is is that if you if if this do, does get placed on the 2020 ballot, who does it help? Does it, mm-hmm. does it help Democrats or, or, or Republicans? We've, we'll have a U.S. Senate race, a presidential contest mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. and I don't know who who would be more lure, more easily lured to the to the uh, poll. Trump, the Trump
4: poll. and casinos on the same ballot. Yeah,
3: uh, yeah. no, it, it's because it, our
4: Nothing. polls, AJC polls, have showed a majority of voters support this, more Democrats than Republicans, mm-hmm. but also recent polls, including um, even the Republican primary in, back in 2012 did a test question among just Republican primary voters. Right, a narrow Majority supported that. So it could be a broad-based support, or what it definitely will bring is millions of dollars in advertisements in, in a campaign on this, too.
1: And it will also encourage people like Bruce Thompson, a vociferous opponent of this measure, and others like him, to speak out the way Thompson did the other day.
4: Pressure cooks up over bills, especially ones like gambling and casinos and horse racing and things that this state has stood against to become the number one state in the country, I'm going to encourage us to stand firm for no other reason than for their children and the generations that are counting on us. Those
1: voices are still out there, Greg Bluestein, Brenda believes that we've changed as a state and perhaps a vote in in favor of gambling might be an easier uh, 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 thing to pass than it was back in the lottery days, but there's still going to be strong opposition from religious organizations, conservatives, who really feel Mm -hmm. this is wrong.
4: Well, it'll be interesting to see how many Republicans... Who oppose this? Take the Ralston af- approach, which is I oppose it, but I want the people to vote. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, one thing to note here: uh, I was watching that video and and, and remembered Bruce Thompson was uh, one of Kemp's very very few supporters in the
1: Senate uh, during during in 2018. This is this is why you're on this show, Galloway. You remember <laughs> things like that, uh, Brenda. Early voting has been going on for a while now, since uh, last Monday on the MARTA referendum up in Gwinnett County, up in your neck of the woods. When we we look at the uh, Georgia Votes website, which has become kind of the go-to website as elections, early elections are underway, uh, you'd have to say that the way the vote is broken out so far, in terms of demographics, it's not probably uh, very favorable. You've got uh, older voters turning out in fairly high percentages and white voters turning out in higher percentages. Are you worried that this thing, this may be a, a, a foreshadowing of what's to come uh, by the time, it, what, March 21st is the actual day of the election?
2: Not at all for this week of early voting, because this week of early voting, we only have one location, and that's the elections board off of Grayson mm. Highway. And um, the reality is that I wouldn't be surprised that that demographic is about the only people that are voting in that location, simply because of where it's situated. And it's really far away from the base of where a lot of the organizations are actually actively mm. canvassing um, um what would be more likely pro-transit voters. So I'm really not concerned with this week of um, early voting. Next two weeks, um, Sunday to Sunday, uh, Monday to Sunday, we have early voting seven to seven, including both Saturdays and Sundays. And it will be in seven satellite locations. That is where we're going to see who actually is coming out to vote in those two weeks of early voting, and I think that we can have a better determination about who's actually being, uh, who's reaching out to these two voters and which voters are actually coming out. Amy,
1: what's your Grunet County mother telling you about how things are going up that way?
2: Uh, well, she has <laughs> gone to a couple of
0: the hearings, so yeah. needless to say, perhaps maybe this is where I get it from, but, you know, they're, they're a little more actively involved and so they've gone to some of the hearings um, and all of that, and she reported back that she was pretty surprised by the amount of turnout that there was, and where it came in, but I think Brenda is totally right when it comes to what to do with sort of this week's numbers as opposed to later ones. Um, Grayson is in the far north of the county. It is a difficult place you know, to get to. Remember, Gwinnett County is one of the largest counties in the state. Um, You can get across both DeKalb and Fulton faster than you can get across just Gwinnett. And so because of that, you're not going to see that traveling. People that are going to be able to do that are those who are not working, hence older, right? It's going to be the, the Grayson area is also demographically sort of more white. And so I think that you're right, that once once they start to open mm. it up, because people say that one of the biggest things that dissuades them from voting is how long it takes them to be able to both drive to the polls and then how long they have to wait in line.
1: Uh, Greg, I noticed that uh, there was just a meeting of a number of uh, leaders from Metro Atlanta, municipalities, mm-hmm. county Uh, They all were together talking about major issues. And to a person, they all, Rusty Paul, Sandy Springs, Liz Hausman on the Fulton County Commission, others saying... This vote in Grenada is so crucial to how we think about transit as we move forward. Yeah, we
4: know Clayton and Cobb are watching this very closely. But that yeah. was interesting because North Fulton still has its own plans for, to raise, I think it was uh, a, a two-tenths of a, of a new sales tax, to increase bus rapid transit and other transit further up North Fulton County's lines. And they're watching this very closely, too, because they know if this fails, it really takes the, um, the, the steam out of their initiative. And
1: uh, Cobb has now said they're going to have a transit vote in 2022, right. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I would just uh, one thing about what, what Greg was saying is is that if
3: uh, if, if this vote fails on March 19th, uh, I don't think the issue disappears in Gwinnett. I think it just it is just reborn as a 2020 issue.
2: Well, Chairman Boyce ha- had it right. And one of the problems that we're having with this being a special election randomly in the middle of March is that the reason they're doing it in 22, because you don't even want it in 21. It's an off-year election, and mm. what you want is the most people to come and actually express their views um, as they vote. And the reality is that when you look at, well, both Cobb residents and Winnick residents, generally you have more people supportive of transit coming into the counties.
1: All right. Um, it is it is March 19th. I said, March 19th. I thought Okay, thank you for correcting me on that. Um Michael Owens, frequent uh, uh, member of the panel here, and, you know, a really terrific one. Cobb County Democratic Party chair. Some people think he's more terrific than others. Well, that's true. There are people who do think he's really especially terrific, but we're not going there right now, Galloway. He just uh, uh, turned in his resignation as chair of the Cobb Democratic Party. And we probably wouldn't even make note of that, except it does lead us to believe that perhaps he sees an election in his future.
3: He has he's already got one election in his past mm-hmm. when he tried to primary David Scott, the, uh, the congressman uh, from the 13th district. And it is entirely possible that he's going to be trying that again.
2: Well, his Twitter handle is still Owens um, for Georgia Thirteenth.
1: So. I, you know, it's been that way, Greg, ever yeah. since the last election cycle, for goodness' sake.
4: Yeah, he hasn't changed that, and uh, we, we're, we're assuming that David Scott's running for re-election, but we're not exactly entirely sure yet. Um, and um, that's, you know, there's going to be a lot of turnout in 2020. Well,
3: this, this is one of those. This is one of this is this isn't too terribly uh, uh, different from uh, Rob Woodall in the seventh. In the seventh mm-hmm. district, and what you have to do is you have to present uh, an incumbent with the with the uh, prospect of having to to really double down and raise money in a way that he, he might not be used to.
1: Yeah, David Scott has been in the House now for long since, long time. since uh, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he's been there forever. Uh, but kind of like Rob Woodall, as yeah. Jim sort of points out, uh, never been in. Th- he doesn't want to go out and raise a lot of money. That's not his yeah. uh, in his DNA. I mean, he likes working in Congress. But I'm not sure being a, an active campaigner and having to do all of the things that are associated with that are something that he looks forward to every two years, so. I think there's a lot
0: of people that don't and that really does come into the determination of it. What point do you decide that, I've had enough right I've, I've had a really good career I've made it through and yeah. so now it's time to step yeah, down and not do things especially like yeah, the primary let,
1: let's speaking of congressional races uh, your name has been thrown around up <laughs> there in the seventh District Brenda Lopez do you want to make an announcement as to whether you might be thinking about running for Congress yourself in 2020
2: Well all I can announce that has actually been very humbling to have uh, several people reach out to me about it and I am definitely doing a strong consideration but right now as we're talking we have a lot of going a lot of things going on at the Capitol and that it.
1: We were hoping for an announcement. Um, We'll watch that with great interest, obviously. All right. We are out of time for uh, today's show. Greg Bluestein, Brenda Lopez, Amy Steigerwald, and Jim Galloway. Thank you. Jim, you have a note right here for me. Do not forget that on Monday, you and I are going to have a really special conversation. Deborah Lipstadt, who I do not think it is overstating to say is one of the world's leading experts on anti-Semitism. And the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is going to join us. He has a new book about just what anti-Semitism is and the role it plays in our lives today. And so we're going to devote the hour to talking with Deborah. And I think it should be really fascinating conversation. So that's Monday at two. Read up on your Israeli politics. Yes, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about Israeli politics and her role in responding to what's happening in Israel with Benjamin Netanyahu right now. That's it. We're out of time uh, for this show. Hey, next week, we've got a special announcement we're going to share with you. We have our first road trip of 2019 scheduled, and we'll tell you when it's going to be on Political Rewind next week. Take care.